Here for Now is back. Welcome in. This podcast is rooted in discussion around creativity, craft, community, and forward motion. I'm your host, Josh Ewell. This week, episode eight, I talk with Zoe Rome. Zoe is a writer, elite runner, and host of the DNF podcast. Zoe and I talk about the challenges of social media platforms. We discuss her mission as a creative individual. We touch on compassion and ways that we can use compassion for better communication. All that and more coming up on Here For Now. What's the worst meal you've ever prepared for yourself? Once when I was backpacking, I had intended to make pad thai, but I forgot like nine out of 10 ingredients and ended up making just ramen noodles with peanut butter on them. Mm. I have one that's actually quite similar. I This happened recently and it's kind of embarrassing that it happened to me not on some sort of camping trip. I was just at home. <laughs> And I, it was one of those nights where it's like I had neglected eating, I got really hungry, and I think all I had was rice noodles and like a cheese powder that you like add some like milk to and you can make mac and cheese. So I made, I was like, ah, I guess it's like rice noodles and mac and cheese will probably work okay. It's not good. It's not good at all. I cannot recommend trying to do mac and cheese with rice noodles. Yeah. Rice noodles like really need a lot of help. They're not pulling a ton of weight in any recipe. They certainly are not. There's a pretty big pad thai spectrum and I was like very much on not the best end of that. Yeah. I feel like too, when you're, when you're out backpacking or you've been super active, it doesn't really matter what you're eating. Some things can taste amazing. Like I'm recalling a time I was on the Colorado trail and I was eating, I think I had tuna Fritos and like a, a tasty bite. Have you ever had one of those? And I just like yeah. had it all mixed together. And that's honestly just disgusting. But I remember yeah. <laughs> just like sitting under a tree while it was raining and just being like, this is the best thing I have ever eaten. Spending a lot of like doing, you know, big through hikes totally recalibrates like what your body and brain perceive of as being like grade A gourmet. Right. Um, so like, you know, I've I mean, I've been like when I used to, I used to be a backpacking guide and I would fully just go weeks where like all I would eat for dinner was like a tortilla with almond butter. And I was like, this is good. It's basically a crepe. Right. And now that like just turns my stomach. Now I'm like, <laughs> I could never eat that in, nor- in the context of normal life and feel okay about that. For sure. Yeah. And I've spent a bunch of time doing a lot of endurance stuff and it sounds like you do. Do you have a distance that you run most often? Are you on the ultra mm-hmm. ultra side of things or do you, are you kind of sit somewhere in the middle? 50 miles. 50 miles? is the most often race well, distance. Well, I think, I think at 50 miles and above, you start to get that furnace aspect when you just like, no matter what you put in your body, you it, it will turn into energy and it will do it quickly. And yes. I've always <laughs> found that when I come back from, and this is maybe something that happened to you as well if you were doing a lot of backpacking at one point, you kind of get into this mode of eating all the time, no matter what. And oh, you're yeah. usually you just, eating like, garbage. Stop and, eating. Yeah, and so I've done all these bikepacking trips where I'm like literally just spending like $100 at a gas station. And that's, there's no model there for health, but when you're like, just have to get calories in so you can stay at a weight that keeps you alive. After you come back from those sort of trips, you're just like, ah, I'm eating so much trash and it's definitely, I feel bad now because I was fine when I was using all the energy of everything I put in my body, but I always find it hard to transition back 
into like eating healthy and trying to take care of myself after those sorts of events. Oh, for sure. And even like after like a 50 mile race, you know, I'm only out there for like a handful of hours. And even at the end, like my stomach's like, you just ate a lot of weird stuff yeah. and like way too much caffeine and like you're going to regret it for a while. <laughs> it takes a while to just like readjust to human food. I've had so many different ways of experimenting with food while out on the trail. And I remember I was running a hundred mile race in Idaho and I, just to be clear, I did not finish this hundred mile race. I did a bunch of research and I was like, okay, cashews, there's a lot of salt, a lot of good nutrients. There's fats in there. Didn't think about yep. how difficult that would be to digest while moving yeah. and I had done some training with it. And so I was just like, I'm going to eat a lot of cashews on this hundred mile run. I was like 15 hours into this thing and just like could not eat anything anymore. And cause I was just eating cashews. I find that regular foods a lot better than, than anything. Oh yeah. I think like so much of like any first, like really big endurance event, like first hundred miler, like the first time I attempted a 100 miler, like my nutrition plan was like gummy bears, Oreos and cereal, which I had trained with fine but had like neglected to account for a lot of environmental factors and like my spit kind of stopped working halfway so mm. i was like having to dunk my oreos and like mm. in, like hydration mix just to like soften them up so i was like trying to like eat slurp liquid oreos oh, it was gross. so awful nothing that like any self-respecting human should really be doing ever not recommended your instagram handle is carrot underscore flowers underscore z is that a neutral milk hotel reference or what's the story behind that it is yeah um i originally just wanted to have like i wanted my instagram handle to be the queen of carrot flowers but that was taken sure. and this seemed like the next best thing because i really really love um avery island and i love neutral milk hotel and for a while my instagram handle was my name and i felt like that was super weird just because it's like not, I mean, you know, no one's social media is them. And I wanted to like create more space between like who I actually am and like my online, like I wanted to like make it super clear that that is not my identity. And I wanted to like create a fun name to represent that. And I really love nineties music. And that was kind of the first thing that sprang to mind. Um, I'd also been a little bit stoned and listening to neutral milk hotel. So I think that was the, uh, that was kind of the catalyst for that. When the things line up right there that you got it. The 90s exactly. music, little Neutral Milk Hotel. You just mentioned a little bit about your online persona versus your actual personality as a, as a human being and not somebody on the internet. How do you manage the difference between those two things? Yeah, I think, you know, I think particularly like as an outdoor industry professional, the industry pushes people to commodify their identities in a way that I'm not super comfortable with. You know, like there's so much pressure to... Um, I think particularly for women in the outdoor industry to put forth this persona of being like a super chill adventure gal who's like always crushing it on the weekends and then who goes out and skis on their lunch break. Like, I think those things are awesome and I try to do them, but it's also like not that authentic to who I am or to who I think most people are. Anything, And I don't think this is bad. Like, I, I think social media can be really great and powerful and like it's fun and like you can make money off of it and things are great. And like, you know, it's I'm not anti-social media. I just think it doesn't behoove anyone to confuse what is real life and what is online and online is necessarily curated. And I think that's good, right? Like, I don't want to get on Instagram and read about like people doing their laundry, but real life is doing laundry and eating cereal and peanut butter noodles and all these things that aren't that exciting. And I think that just like being really honest about the disconnect there and not trying to pretend that those things are the same or try to um, be someone that I'm not or and like I also really a thing that I'm very tired of on social media is people who are like I know you think I'm perfect but like secretly I'm a mess because I don't think that's that authentic either and it's super 
it gets very repetitive after like the first person does it. And I think that being really honest that like what people see online is absolutely an avatar and that that's not bad. That doesn't make me like disingenuous or inauthentic or like deceitful. It's just being honest that like what you see is curated and it's telling one specific story that is like partially part of my professional persona. Because of that, I don't want it to have the same name as me. That makes a ton of sense and, to like, me. I don't want it to be just because it's something that like I think particularly in the outdoor industry, people are always trying to like hustle on their social media and like brandify their own like being as a person that's never been something I've been comfortable with. And so giving it a goofy name based on a 90s <laughs> neutral milk hotel song for me helps like reiterate that it is, you know, it should be fun. It should not be something that's taken seriously and it should not be mistaken for like my true identity in any way. I have struggled quite a bit with that sort of existing on the internet underneath your own name. You know, for the longest time that was, I just, you know, I had that Instagram for Joshua Yule and that was like the thing. And I was just like, I don't know what I put on here is somehow supposed to be, you know, somebody can Google me or find me on the internet and be like, oh, this is what this guy is like. And that bothered me to no end all the time. And I have tons of problems with social media and I'm not anti, but I think I would be if I worked in a different profession. Um, yeah. But I, I, I recognize its value. And I've also experienced a lot of really cool things through social media. But yeah, that's how like Middlewell came about is because I, I wanted to have sort of a, a pseudonym. I wanted to have some sort of disconnect between who I am as a person and how I want to be perceived as a professional, but also just be able to have the opportunity to explore some stuff that I may not have explored as a as an individual, you know, it's like, hey, it's me, Josh, I'm doing this thing. But instead, I am able to focus things a little bit differently. Yeah, I think it just like affirms to me that I can use that space to tell really specific stories about myself. But it doesn't like there's no pressure for it to like actually be the end all be all of like who I am. And it just like allows me to have that separation and signal to other people that there is a separation between who I am and what they see. And, you know, I just, I don't want it to be something that just like I spend a bunch of time on and pour myself into. And it just like makes money for some dude in Silicon Valley who I will like never meet rather than being something that's like fun and useful for me. You host a podcast and you are a writer. Those are two mediums that maybe one doesn't always think of aesthetic when talking about, you know, usually aesthetic just kind of goes straight towards visual. But I think there's a lot to be said about the aesthetic that's produced from audio and words. How do you approach your own aesthetic through those two mediums? Yeah, I think that's a really great question, actually. And I do uh, sometimes get frustrated when people try to pinhole aesthetic or even like I try to think of myself, uh, hopefully it doesn't sound too high, but like as an auteur or like as an established, like trying to establish my voice and solidify my voice in a way that makes it wreck it. Like when you, you know, even if someone else were to perform the voiceover for my podcast, you would be able to tell from the words that they're saying like, oh yeah, Zoe wrote this. Like this is um, very representative of her voice and her perspective and no one else should be able to uh, bring life to it in the same way that I do. So for me, that's paying attention when I'm writing, when I'm speaking, and when I'm reading to the things that resonate with me and that feel like they are authentic expressions of like what I actually mean. Like when you're, you know, I think one of the things that's really challenging about being a creative is you spend so much time trying to just like, you have all the stuff on the inside and you want to put it out in the world in a way that resonates with another person. Um, and so finding that bridge between what you feel and what other people will understand is the creative work and trying to 
build that bridge in a way that feels truly authentic to who I am is, I think, the where the voice comes in. Um, and so I think it's just really reflecting on those moments where I'll write something and I'm like, that's really Zoe. Like, and what about it makes it really Zoe? Or when I'm, you know, even I pay attention when I'm in conversation with other people, like, that's like, that's where my voice really comes out. This is where I really sound like myself, not like how I want myself to sound or not how other people perceive me, but this is how I actually am. And I am representing it authentically and effectively. Um, and I think just take like, you know, even when I'll, when I'll read other people's work, I'll take notes on like, yes, this is like where their voice really comes out in a way that's unique to them. And I get it. I'll um, go back and listen to my podcasts and go back and read my writing. And I'm like, yes, here's a moment where my voice really, really comes out and is representative of what I'm actually like, what my project actually is, which is like a very nerdy way of saying, I just try to listen to myself a lot and read a lot and be attentive and mindful of when people or myself do things well, or where there's room for improvement on what I'm already doing. You know, that's a common thread, I think, among most people who are in some sort of creative space is that sort of self-reflexive, self-analytical, maybe to some degree when, when you make something and maybe you receive some positive feedback, maybe you receive some, some bad feedback and you go back and reassess that sort of what you've done. I can sometimes find that to be a difficult process on both ends. When something goes really well, I find I'm like, oh, wow, that was really good. I'm good at this. And then other times it goes badly and, you know, it's hard to get constructive feedback. I feel like these days looking back on yourself as a creative and trying to figure out how to make yourself better is sometimes really good and sometimes really bad. How do you manage the balance between those two things? Yeah, I think this is such a good question. I was actually about to ask you how you handled it because I think this is something I'm always learning on. But my system typically is I have a list of the five people that I will solicit and unconditionally accept feedback from. These are people that I trust to not just always say, oh, you're doing a great job. I love what you're doing. But people who are going to give authentic and constructive feedback that I can actually implement. And then because the internet is terrible and people aren't that good at giving feedback. And there a lot of times, especially on the internet, people will give you feedback that says not that much about what you're doing and a lot more about who they are as people and about what they're dealing with. And that's really challenging. And you just can't shift your creative vision to reflect what those people are feeling because it'll dilute your product. It'll dilute your voice. It'll dilute your vision in ways that just aren't um, aren't correct. And that's not to say that you shouldn't listen to negative feedback or positive feedback. It just says you should be really intentional about how you solicit feedback, how you incorporate feedback, who you do that from the states that you're in when you're soliciting or getting feedback. Like I try not to go looking for feedback when I am not ready to implement it. Like I try to not start from a place of like, oh, I don't feel good about what I'm doing. Let me go find someone that says I'm doing a good job or almost like mental self-punishment of like, oh, I'm going to go, you know, get on the internet and see what people think about what I'm doing. So that's not productive either. So I think that's just making sure that I'm in a space where I can actually learn from what people are saying and that I'm seeking it out and it's coming from people I trust. And if something like if someone says something and it hits me in a way that I'm not comfortable with trying to ask questions about like, why does this feedback hurt me in a way that's maybe not productive or effective? Um, why does it make me feel this way? Is it because I know they're right or is it because I know they're wrong and I can't really do anything about it because they just don't get what I'm doing? Um, and I would love to know how you sort through all those things in your work because, I mean, we're in similar fields here. And I think it's you know something that everyone kind of has to navigate for themselves in a way. Good feedback is a bit of an art form in and of itself. 
critique, I suppose, is the art school kid way to talk about it. And that's, I went to art school and every single day I, I put my work in front of somebody and said, Hey, what do you think of this? And I, everybody I sat down with, I respected greatly because they were all there for the same reason. Right. So we we're all in the same little bubble, all trying to accomplish the same thing of, you know, pushing ourselves creatively and all that. And so it was a very safe space and it was very comfortable to be able to have your friend sit across from you and rip your work to shreds. And, you know, many years of that helped me, I think, you know, it's still hard. You know, somebody gives feedback and I, if I look at it, I'm like, I actually kind of like how this has turned out and I get feedback that doesn't reflect that. Of course, there's ego involved, no matter who you are. There's always some sort of internal battle. that's like, oh man, like I thought it was good and maybe it's not and maybe I suck and maybe I should stop forever. And, you know, it's a slippery slope sometimes. It kind of just depends on my mood. I really like what you've said about having, you know, a few people to always reach out to people that you'll listen to unconditionally because that really helps you move forward. Because if you, if you are going into something saying, I respect you, you understand me to some degree, and I want to hear what you have to say, you have the common ground to start with feedback. You mentioned the internet being a bad place for that sort of thing. And you don't have that common ground to start, right? You just kind of are like, this is a stranger over here. You don't know what you're talking about, or you're just making this about you, or you're attacking me, not the work. Or, you know, there's a lot of things that kind of take the playing ground and move it around quite a bit. But yeah, I really like the idea of having that. I have a few people, but maybe I should consider kind of sticking to that, like making a list of five people. I like that quite a bit. I want to talk about community, and that's been a, a huge thread with this podcast and just my life in general. I have really felt the need for community a lot in my life in the last few years. And I feel like I've struggled to find it in a lot of different spaces. And then there's moments where I do find it and I'm like, oh shit, how did I get here? Like, I need to write this down so I could do this again. <laughs> like, how do I get to this community and how do I keep it? And so my question for you is how do you manage your own personal community as, as an individual? And then how do you build community outside of that? For me, it's, it's again, just paying attention to the times when I've noticed that other people made me feel really safe, welcome and included and knowing what like paying attention to the mechanisms that they use to make that happen and trying to implement those for um, other people. And, you know, I think about this particularly in the context of like my work at Trail Runner, trying to build and expand the community of trail runners just kind of through creative work. I, I think that that's like really central to what I do and really being intentional when I write things or when I edit things like how does this if the if the intent if that's what the intent is how does this grow how does this grow the community how does this impact the community does it listen as much as it speaks because i think work that just you know yells at people without listening um isn't that interesting or good i think that things that are too self-assured and don't promote dialogue are you know just less creatively interesting and don't do a great job of fostering community um i think it's just paying attention to the times when i've felt really like loved and included and safe in places and trying to just put, you know, do those things for other people in a way that feels authentic to me. It could be difficult managing that. At least for myself, I've found that when you get the train moving, at least enough in that space, you can keep it rolling usually. <laughs> yeah. So walk me through a day 
in your life. Paint me a word picture about hmm. what an average day for you looks like because you do quite oh, a man. few different things. Yeah. And I feel like it's also gotten pretty different during the pandemic. I'm, I'm like a huge routine person. Okay. Like I wish I was more exciting, but like I really also am very happy and feel good when uh, there's not too much variation to my days. But I typically get up at like 530 uh, because that is what time my dog likes to get up. So I walk her around and then I start work or I make coffee is like the second thing I do because I am not a functional person. And I am a huge believer in like trying to mesh little tiny, like nice rituals into my day. So like, I'm not a coffee, like I like to like actually grind my coffee and then like make it in a Chemex and pretend that that is like some amount of self-care that like moves the needle on uh, my day and make coffee. And then I, um, I'm, part-time I work as an endurance coach. So I start coaching people, um, pretty much right away. And I'll, and I just, I check in with the athletes I coach every day. And I really love that. Cause I'm a very, like, I am a community person and I love checking in with my people. And that is a really nice way to start the day. Um, and then I'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half. And then I kind of start trend. I transition to my, I put on my trail runner editorial hat, um, and then kind of start either I'm not like I'm a morning person, but I'm not like I could, I'm never creative in the mornings. Um, I'm like very envious of people who are able to just like wake up and like feel refreshed and start journaling. I'm not that person. Um, I need to do a bunch of like really boring grindy work before my brain is in a place where I think all the juices are. That's how you start your day. You got to do the grind stuff first. I grind. Yeah. Like I, you know, physically grinding the the coffee and the work. Exactly. Yeah. I'm like, what's the most annoying email I can get into? That's like, you know, I'll do that stuff. And then um, I kind of just, yeah, spend my morning doing more like I manage all the digital stuff for Trail Runner. So editing digital articles, posting digital articles, doing the annoying social media stuff that I uh, don't love, but is nonetheless important for, you know, audience engagement or so I'm told. And then like it, um, about 11, I usually do a run and then I come back and I coach a little more and I eat lunch. And then I usually the afternoon is when I do my best like actual writing. And I try to set aside that time to do like to push myself to either work on my podcast or do more fun, like editor, like opinion editorial style content, less like straightforward black and white reporting stuff, but more like fun stuff, trying to develop my voice, trying to write about things that really matter to me or like really intellectually uh, challenging or spark curiosity in some way. And then um, depending on the day, I might do a second run or a bike ride and then um, like 10 minutes of strength training. And uh, then I make dinner while listening to a podcast. And I walk my dog a couple times throughout that process. And then I'm like asleep at 8.30 every night. I love love my early like COVID bedtime all about it. Yeah. I, re- I really respect the early morning, wake up the early to bed, go to sleep. I'm like, I mean, yeah. I've, I've been like that since before COVID. So yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, I feel like I used to, I, uh, struggled with before COVID in the before times, like FOMO would be an issue. And I like, I love hanging out with people, but I also love sleeping and like feeling good when I wake up and like being hydrated and well rested. And it's been really nice to have a year that like fully demonstrated how much better you feel when you are like, when you, when you end the day hydrated and like, right. You take some time to actually get some real rest. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a problem for me too. Cause you know, when you go to bed at eight 30 or nine most days and then you have the, you know, the odd night where you're out with some friends and 
it's like nine o'clock and you're fading. You're just like, I have yeah. to go to bed <laughs> and this, I'm having a great time. Really, I swear, but I can't yeah. do this. <laughs> I was remembering like when I used to live in Boulder, I would go to a trivia night that started at 10 PM. And I was just like, how oh, the sounds hell? Stressful. Like, dude, I, and like, I used to think it was like nothing. And it was on a Wednesday that is just like wild to me now. Like, I'm like, that's fundamentally a different person. Like, <laughs> how the hell do you have a beer at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday and then get up and function like an adult the next, I couldn't do it. Yeah. I'm, I'm really affected by caffeine, but I really, really like coffee. And so yeah. I just learned recently actually that you like drip coffee affects you a lot differently than like an espresso, which is yeah. bad because I live down the street from a very fantastic coffee place. And Ooh. I've found that I can have like an espresso drink from there in the, in like around noon and I can still go to bed. But if I drink drip coffee at noon, I won't sleep. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm super like I have to cut myself off at noon as well, which is like one of the things that makes me feel like straight up elderly. I'm like, yeah, sometimes I want a coffee know. at three o'clock. Like I would love to be sipping yeah. coffee right now. It's like I want to be a little bit more awake, but I don't want to have like a straight on like 8 p.m. panic attack for no reason. Yeah, either. my needle, too, is just like there's a very small green area. And then if I have one sip too much, I go into just like incapable of existing no, yeah. I, like I'll yeah. walk around my house and be like, why do I feel crazy? I feel insane right now. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. Or like, I feel like this happened to me like yesterday morning. I was like typing. I was like, why do my fingers hurt? Is it because I'm mashing the keys? Like, it's just like, there's such a fine line between being like fully functional and like, you know, might need to, you know, <laughs> I need life alert, but for coffee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need somebody to just slap the coffee out of my hand really when I'm like, yeah. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make that third cup. And the voice yeah. in the back of when my head like, is like, you shouldn't you step over that precipice. You shouldn't, but you will. I know you will. <laughs> Let's talk about your podcast. Yeah. Tell me about it. My podcast is called DNF, which endurance athletes will know to be an acronym for did not finish. Essentially, when I got hired at Trail Runner, I got hired on the condition that I'd be allowed to make a podcast about whatever I wanted. I didn't know what it was at the time, but was like, I just, you know, there's, there's a lot of great running podcasts out there, but. I had previously been working for NPR and I wanted to apply my NPR storytelling expertise into the endurance space and just make something that was like that it respected the intelligence of my listeners in a way that I didn't feel was 100% represented in the market and was just more interesting and more story driven than just like two dudes talking about ketogenesis or whatever. <laughs> and I wanted something that was just like more fun for me to make and was intellectually stimulating and kind of sparked my curiosity. DNF is about failure. Because like, if you listen to so many other podcasts, it's like, you hear people talking about like, oh, how did you become so successful? And like, that's really cool and great. But narratively, the tension comes from, you know, like, when things aren't going so great. And so like, what do we learn from that? How does working through times of failure help people become better humans, athletes, writers, parents, partners, whatever it is? Um, I'm just always fascinated by stories of really excellent, high achieving people struggling. Like I find that to be just like the most validating story ever because like every human struggles and it's so hard to talk about that. Like culturally, there's not a lot of space given to people talking about how much divorce sucks or like how much it sucks to lose your job and like having these hard, vulnerable conversations, particularly in the endurance sports space. I wanted to open up room for people to have these challenging conversations, but also like not in the perspective of like me being a therapist and like holding space or whatever. Like I wanted it to be interesting and challenging without being cloying in any way. I wanted it to be like, just, I wanted it to feel authentic to like my 
understanding of life is that stuff is hard, but the hard stuff helps you grow. And just acknowledging both sides of that is like what makes it interesting and makes you able to keep going. You know, some advice was given to me a while ago by a friend of mine. And the advice that was given to me was it's, it's when everything starts to go wrong. And this is, you know, definitely not the first person to say this, but when things start to go wrong, right? Like that's when you, that's when you start to learn some stuff, right? But Mm -hmm. it's the thing that was just told to me was when you start to touch the essence of the thing it is, that's when you have to start paying attention. And that sort of reframed my perspective because I like, I'm, you know, cliches are cliche for a reason, right? But when you're in that moment, you're like, this is dumb. This is stupid. Why am I doing this to myself? Or you're in a situation that you aren't in control of and you have to keep going. The reminder, the sort of like poke in the back of the head being like, hey, you got to pay attention now. You didn't need to pay attention up until this point. But right now, it's very important for you to actually stay course and figure it out because this is the moment that's going to help you later. Whether or not you get something out of this moment right now is a whole different story. But later, you're going to have something from this experience. And that's always stuck with me that it's, it's more about paying attention in those moments than it is about having to be like, I can conquer this moment. Totally. I think that's, and that's also, I think a really undervalued perspective, like in the ways that people talk about this. And I think like, you know, whenever you're going through something hard, the last thing you want someone to tell you is that like, it'll be okay. Or like, you're going to come out on the other side so much stronger because those really invalidate the feeling. And it is also just like, as a creative, like I hate cliche, but also realize that cliches exist for a reason. And that's because, uh, you know, as wonderful and like individuals we all are the human experience like there's only so much going on right like good luck coming up with some there's nothing new you know like being a person's being a person yeah food shelter Um, water exactly yeah uh you know man versus self man versus nature like you know you can there's not you know there's only so many types of conflict and sitting with those and figuring out why they're actually interesting rather than just like let's try to get move it like get through it and come out stronger on the other side or like a lot of self-help kind of you know, cliches that I just don't find that interesting or like actually conducive to the learning element of things like these things. I think, yeah, just acknowledging that there's a lot of stuff about being a person that is genuinely hard. And when you're going through it, like nothing sucks more, but just hearing about other people that have made it through it can sometimes make it easier or just, I don't know, can help us respond to what we're going through, what other people are going through with a bit more self-compassion and just like curiosity too. Because if you're not curious about why stuff hurts then I mean you know like as a creative person you're like oh man I'm really going through something I want to like figure out why I'm feeling this way and like how can I make it art later right that's like always like as a you know as a writer you're like oh man this is it's always like it's a good time or a good story right like every time something really shitty happens to me like man this will be a great short story someday when I'm like when I'm there yeah I don't know I don't know what that's like for people who maybe don't involve their brains in a never ending creative space because it can be, it can be a bit cyclical sometimes, but yeah, I wonder how other, other folks outside of the creative space. I know, like, what do you do? Just not make art about like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Like how are you? I know people journal like that seems cool, but yeah, but journal, like not really my jam. I'm of the belief that everyone has a creative bone in their body. We all have the ability to use problem solving to make something happen. Right. And yeah. I think, you're cutting yourself short if you say you're not a creative person and it's okay if you're not interested in the creative mediums. Right. But creativity is a huge part of existing. And I think everybody has the ability to, to push creativity in their own life in one way, shape or form. I don't know what that looks like for you, but 
it can be pretty like I think culturally we're pretty bad at defining creativity like it doesn't mean you need to like whip out your watercolors and like watercolor your way to radical self-acceptance or like you know get into haiku like being creative can mean a different thing to every person right it's just like I happen to function in one of the older and more traditional staunchy mediums that we've that we've created as a species some feedback that was given to me about this podcast was the person that reached out to me and said that they really want to hear more about from people when your passion overlaps with what you do for work. And, mm. you know, what are the challenges that, that go along with having something that you care deeply about, but then have that also be a source of stress in your life? Yeah. I mean, it's so hard. Like, I hate that growing up, people have told me like, do what you, you know, find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Cause that's Bullshit. totally untrue. Like, <laughs> yeah, when you love it, like I have to like set an alarm to turn my computer off at the end of the day so that I like stay mentally healthy and don't burn out because I will just keep doing it and doing it and doing it until I run myself ragged. And I just have to be so intentional about like trying to really foster a rich inner life that like I never tell other people about so that I still get to be a complete whole person and that I'm always really clear with myself about like you are not your work your work is your work you should put yourself into your work but not your whole self and that is not representative of your whole self and that's like good and healthy it's hard like I have to be so intentional about the ways like trying not to conflate my identity with my productivity and with like either as an athlete or a writer um, affirming that you can be a runner even when you're not running in the same way you can be a writer even when you're not writing. And just because you haven't written something in a little while that you're excited about doesn't make you not a writer. Just always trying to cultivate things outside of my work that are rep that are representative of my identity and that make me feel good and make me feel like a whole person and not get caught up in the things about, you know, that are necessary to any job that make you feel like less than a whole person. Sometimes I wish I was just like a barista and could like go home and not spend like all night thinking about work or whatever. But also I think that it is like a pretty authentic expression of who I am as a person. And I feel very lucky to have the platform that I do. Yeah. The grass is always greener syndrome is certainly a ever present member of the creative space. Yeah. I worked so hard to get here. And like, I like all I ever wanted to be when I was a kid was a writer. And now I'm doing that as a job, which is amazing. I, I wish I was better at setting boundaries for myself and not using writing as a way of like shoring up my identity or value in ways that are unhealthy only in ways that are good and that's tough to like figure out the difference i think it's a lifelong practice to get to yes. the point to where you have some balance there in your podcast you talk about reframing our darkest moments what is that process like for you I think um, always it's acknowledging that like it's okay to be in a really dark, scary place. And like the first time I think that you go through something hard is always the worst. And then eventually you just like, you go through something hard, you survive, you're like, oh, it's great. I've survived that. The next time you go through something similar, even if it's scarier, I think just knowing that you're capable of getting through stuff makes it a little bit easier. Um, and then just like not rushing myself to learn from it or process it or like art it right away. Um, giving myself time to sit with it and just feel what I'm feeling about it and like tell people about it and not force myself to feel, you know, a certain way or like be positive or learn a lesson is like really huge for me. Cause I always used to like, I'm a pretty positive person, but I used to put so much pressure on myself to like, I would experience something really challenging and I would be like, learn the lesson, like internalize, like process this, like come out stronger, do it now. And 
there's just no rush on that. Like you have your whole life to work stuff out. And I think also acknowledging that it's okay to be scared because if you never feel fear, then you also never get to be brave. And so just acknowledging the moments in which I feel like genuinely afraid and not shying away from that um, and allowing myself to feel empowered by working through it rather than upset at myself for feeling like normal human feelings. I've had a bit of a shift in my career in the last couple of years. And a big part of that is wanting more community, wanting to build more community with other creative folks and people outside of the creative space. And then another aspect of that was like, I don't, I have a difficult time in the outdoor space. Sometimes I I don't want to sell another Gore-Tex jacket, you know, at least, at least I don't want it to be about that. You know, if there's some product that's behind a stronger message, then, then yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to figure out a way to take my mediums, you know, through whether it's this podcast or filmmaking or photography, I wanted to actually say, okay, I have, I'm a creative person. I have a platform. I have a skill set that can make a difference in the world. And I feel a responsibility as a creative person to drive towards some sort of positive change. So my question for you is, do you have a mission with the work that you do now? And do you feel a similar responsibility or do you feel differently about that? Absolutely. I mean, my background is like, I have a master's degree in environmental journalism. I have been honing my craft with the intention of becoming excellent at what I do so that I can shine a light on the things that matter to me. And that is the fact that we are in the midst of an unprecedented environmental crisis. And we need to do a lot about that and try to empower people with both knowledge and solutions and some optimism, right? Because like if you feel disempowered and you don't believe you can make a difference, then that doesn't do anyone any good. And I think that, you know, we all have to kind of get on board on this Sisyphean task of doing something. Uh, doing a lot more than we're currently doing. And also, I think it's a really beautiful, wonderful system that I wish everyone understood just a little bit more. I think a lot of what I do is totally colored by that passion for the environment and that desire to commute. Like, I always just felt like if people could understand how wonderful and beautiful this thing we have is, then they will be as compelled as I am to um, grow closer to it and protect it and protect the people on it and around it. And I very much try to use whatever skills, talents, abilities, platform I have to shine a light on environmental issues and to try to tackle um, what is a really big story from a lot of different angles and then a lot of different ways. And to be quite frank, an audience that is not always super receptive to these ideas. And so just trying to approach it with nuance, compassion, understanding, science and good writing like in a good story. Um, I think, you know, coming coming from like a creative writing background, um, I've always been really interested in how we can use old school storytelling techniques to connect people to really big and unwieldy concepts and ideas like climate change and our role in the system driving it. And I feel like it's a really invigorating and exciting challenge. But, you know, I, I think that's like, that's the thing that keeps me going and keeps me engaged and activated on a daily basis is just that connection to the environment and the belief that I truly can make a difference by helping other people realize their their potency in the system as well. You touched a little bit on compassion, and I find that compassion is a very powerful thing, but it's also increasingly more difficult. How do you manage finding that compassion whilst trying to further your mission and the positive change that you want to create? To use the environmental conversation as an example, 
I come from a very uh, conservative rural part of the United States. So I feel that I understand a lot of sometimes the pushback I get when I am trying to present certain ideas about the environment, because for a lot of people, it is in direct conflict with some of their perceived values of jobs, national security, like just, you know, whatever story that they've been told or they believe in. And it never does anyone any good to say, you're stupid, you're wrong, get on my wagon. It always behooves the conversation for me to say, wow, that's your value. How can I communicate to what you care about? Like, how do I make this about you instead of trying to make it always about me and my values? How can I listen to you and therefore tailor this very important conversation in a way that makes it feel really immediate and relevant to you? And I think it just has to be grounded in understanding that like, oh, you care about jobs and the economy? Like, yeah, me too. Let me listen about like why that matters to you and how I can connect this conversation to what you're really invested in and trusting that because you care about it, it it can, it, it is important. And like, I need to listen to that. And I don't need to say, well, you know what, like screw your perception of jobs, the economy, we need to, you know, we need to pass this policy agenda. I can say, wow, like that's a really amazing perspective to bring. How can I, um, adapt my policy agenda to better speak to your authentic needs, desires, and um, wants? Like, how do I make this work for you? How do I trust that the way that you feel about like the things that you hold precious and dear in your life is exactly the way I feel about the things in my life. And I need to meet you with exactly that level of dignity and understanding. Otherwise, this is going to be um, a one-way conversation that benefits no one and just makes me feel like better about myself. And that's not very useful. For anyone who is maybe feeling stuck in that space, whether it's, you know, climate change or any other issue that's, you know, on the forefront of their brain, do you have any advice for someone who's feeling stuck on how to, to move past that and how to move forward? We got here on our own. We can get out on our own, you know, and I think that like, if you feel disempowered, like I hear you, I understand, I've been there, we've all been there. You feeling the way that you feel when you feel disempowered is essentially a political tool enacted upon you by the people who benefit from you feeling that way. So to be realistic, like the most empowering thing you can do is just refuse to buy into that story and to invest wholeheartedly in the belief that you matter and that you can enact change and that you have a vital and individual role to play in making this world better. And that the only reason you don't feel that way is because people benefit from you not feeling that way. And like the most powerful thing you can do as an individual is join with other people and organize for collective action. The, the people who benefit from us not listening to each other are like the people up top who profit off of our inability to listen and have compassion for um, people on the opposite side of the aisle or the ideological spectrum from us. The most empowering thing you can do is listen to other people really try to hold their values in your hands the same way that you hold your own with the same weight and dignity and understanding, the less that we can stigmatize having disagreements or approaching things from different perspectives, the more comfortable just talking with people who disagree with us can be. And I think that that's incredibly, incredibly powerful and just helps us see everyone else as, as, a, as a person. And then when we all see each other as person, people, we realize we're on the same team and we can like really, really meaningfully move the needle on some of these issues that we really care about. You matter greatly. You can enact incredible change. You have a vital role to play in making this world a better place. Yes. 
A big thanks to Zoe for reaching out and being willing to sit down and have this conversation. And make sure to check out the DNF podcast. We're now back on a regular schedule with new episodes every other Monday. Here for Now is solely supported by its listeners. If you feel inclined to contribute to helping this podcast stay up and running, head over to middlewell.com backslash here for now and look for that donation button. And until next time, happy trails. Happy trails.